Chapter Twenty One of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume Three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter Twenty One, Seventeen Ninety Nine, Our Departure from Egypt, Nocturnal Embarkation, Monsieur Parceval, Grand Maison, On Course, Adverse Winds fear of the english favourable weather vingt-et-un chess we land at ajaccio bonaparte's pretended relations family domains want of money battle of novi death of joubert visionary schemes purchase of a boat departure from corsica the english squadron our escape the roads of Fréjus, our landing in France, the plague or the Austrians, joy of the people, the sanitary laws, Bonaparte falsely accused. We were now to return to our country, again to cross the sea, to us so pregnant with danger. Caesar and his fortune were once more to embark. But Caesar was not now advancing to the east, to add Egypt to the conquests of the Republic, he was revolving in his mind vast schemes, unawed by the idea of venturing everything to chance in his own favour, the government for which he had fought. The hope of conquering the most celebrated country of the East no longer excited the imagination, as on our departure from France. Our last visionary dream had vanished before the walls of Saint-Jean-d'Arc and we were leaving on the burning sands of Egypt most of our companions in arms. An inconceivable destiny seemed to urge us on, and we were obliged to obey its decrees. On the 23rd of August we embarked on board two frigates, the Mouiron and Carrère. Footnote. Mouiron, named after Bonaparte's aide-de-camp killed in the Italian campaign. End footnote. Our number was between four and five hundred. Such was our squadron, and such the formidable army with which Bonaparte had resolved, as he wrote to the Divan of Cairo, quote, to annihilate all his enemies, end quote. This boasting might impose on those who did not see the real state of things. But what were we to think of it? What Bonaparte himself thought the day after. The night was dark when we embarked in the frigates, which lay at a considerable distance from the port of Alexandria, but by the faint light of the stars we perceived a corvette, which appeared to be observing our silent nocturnal embarkation. Footnote. The horses of the escort had been left to run loose on the beach, and all was perfect stillness in Alexandria when the advanced posts of the town were alarmed by the wild galloping of horses which, from a natural instinct, were returning to Alexandria through the desert. The picket ran to arms on seeing horses ready saddled and bridled, which were soon discovered to belong to the regiment of guides. They at first thought that a misfortune had happened to some detachment in its pursuit of the Arabs. With these horses came also those of the generals who had embarked with General Bonaparte, so that Alexandria was for a time in considerable alarm. The cavalry was ordered to proceed in all haste in the direction whence the horses came, 
and every one was giving himself up to the most gloomy conjectures when the cavalry returned to the city with the Turkish groom, who was bringing back General Bonaparte's horse to Alexandria. Note, Memoirs of the Duc de Rovigo, tome 1, page 182. End note. End footnote. Next morning, just as we were on the point of setting sail, we saw, coming from the port of Alexandria, a boat, on board of which was Monsieur Parcival Grandmaison. This excellent man, who was beloved by all of us, was not included among the persons whose return to France had been determined by the General-in-Chief. In his anxiety to get off, Bonaparte would not hear of taking him on board. It will readily be conceived how urgent were the entreaties of Parcival. But he would have sued in vain had not Gontom, Monge, Berthollet, and I interceded for him. With some difficulty, we overcame Bonaparte's resistance, and our colleague of the Egyptian Institute got on board, after the wind had filled our sails. It has been erroneously said that Admiral Gontom had full control of the frigates, as if anyone could command when Bonaparte was present. On the contrary, Bonaparte declared to the Admiral, in my hearing, that he would not take the ordinary course and get into the open sea, Keep close along the coast of the Mediterranean, said he, on the African side, until you get south of Sardinia. I have here a handful of brave fellows and a few pieces of artillery. If the English should appear, I will run ashore, and with my party make my way by land to Oran, Tunis, or some other port, whence we may find an opportunity of getting home. This was his irrevocable determination. For twenty-one days, adverse winds, blowing from west or northwest, drove us continually on the coast of Syria, or in the direction of Alexandria. At one time it was even proposed that we should again put into the port, but Bonaparte declared he would rather brave every danger than do so. During the day we tacked to a certain distance northward, and in the evening we stood towards Africa, until we came within sight of the coast. Finally, after no less than twenty-one days of impatience and disappointment, a favourable east wind carried us past that point of Africa on which Carthage formerly stood, and we soon doubled Sardinia. We kept very near the western coast of that island, where Bonaparte had determined to land in case of our falling in with the English squadron. From thence his plan was to reach Corsica, and there to await a favourable opportunity of returning to France. Everything had contributed to render our voyage dull and monotonous, and besides, we were not entirely without uneasiness as to the steps which might be taken by the Directory, for it was certain that the publication of the intercepted correspondence must have occasioned many unpleasant disclosures. Bonaparte used often to walk on deck, to superintend the execution of his orders. The smallest sail that appeared in view excited his alarm. The fear of falling into the hands of the English never forsook him. That was what he dreaded most of all. And yet, at a subsequent period, he trusted to the generosity of his enemies. However, in spite of our well-founded alarm, there were some moments in which we sought to amuse ourselves, or, to use a common expression, to kill time. 
cards afforded us a source of recreation, and even this frivolous amusement served to develop the character of Bonaparte. In general, he was not fond of cards, but if he did play, l'antien was his favourite game, because it is more rapid than many others, and because, in short, it afforded him an opportunity of cheating. For example, he would ask for a card. If it proved a bad one, he would say nothing, but lay it down on the table and wait till the dealer had drawn his. If the dealer produced a good card, then Bonaparte would throw aside his hand without showing it and give up his stake. If, on the contrary, the dealer's card made him exceed 21, Bonaparte also threw his cards aside without showing them and asked for the payment of his stake. He was much diverted by these little tricks, especially when they were played off undetected, and I confess that even then we were courtiers enough to humour him and wink at his cheating. I must, however, mention that he never appropriated to himself the fruit of these little dishonesties, for at the end of the game he gave up all his winnings, and they were equally divided. Gain, as may readily be supposed, was not his object, but he always expected that fortune would grant him an ace or a ten at the right moment, with the same confidence with which he looked for fine weather on the day of battle. If he were disappointed, he wished nobody to know it. Bonaparte also played at chess, but very seldom, because he was only a third-rate player, and he did not like to be beaten at that game, which, I know not why, is said to bear a resemblance to the grand game of war. At this latter game, Bonaparte certainly feared no adversary. This reminds me that, when we were leaving Passeriano, he announced his intention of passing through Mantua. He was told that the commandant of that town, I believe General Beauvoir, was a great chess player, and he expressed a wish to play a game with him. General Beauvoir asked him to point out any particular pawn with which he would be checkmated, adding that, if the pawn were taken, he, Bonaparte, should be declared the winner. Bonaparte pointed out the last pawn on the left of his adversary. A mark was put upon it, and it turned out that he actually was checkmated with that very pawn. Bonaparte was not very pleased at this. He liked to play with me, because, though rather a better player than himself, I was not always able to beat him. As soon as a game was decided in his favour, he declined playing any longer, preferring to rest on his laurels. The favourable wind, which had constantly prevailed after the first twenty days of our voyage, still continued while we kept along the coast of Sardinia. But after we had passed that island, the wind again blew violently from the west, and on the 1st of October we were forced to enter the Gulf of Ajaccio. We sailed again next day, but we found it impossible to work our way out of the Gulf. We were therefore obliged to put into the port and land at Ajaccio. Adverse winds obliged us to remain there until the 7th of October. It may readily be imagined how much this delay annoyed Bonaparte. He sometimes expressed his impatience, as if he could enforce the obedience of the elements as well as of the men. He was losing time, and time was everything to him. 
There was one circumstance which seemed to annoy him as much as any of his more serious vexations. What will become of me, said he, if the English, who are cruising hereabout, should learn that I have landed in Corsica? I shall be forced to stay here. That I could never endure. I have a torrent of relations pouring upon me. His great reputation had certainly prodigiously augmented the number of his family. He was overwhelmed with visits, congratulations, and requests. The whole town was in a commotion. Every one of its inhabitants wished to claim him as their cousin, and from the prodigious number of his pretended godsons and goddaughters, it might have been supposed that he had held one-fourth of the children of Ajaxio at the baptismal font. Bonaparte frequently walked with us in the neighbourhood of Ajaxio, and when in all the plentitude of his power he did not count his crowns with greater pleasure than he evinced in pointing out to us the little domains of his ancestors. While we were at Ajaxio, Monsieur Fesch gave Bonaparte French money in exchange for a number of Turkish sequins, amounting in value to 17,000 francs. This sum was all that the general brought with him from Egypt. I mention this fact because he was unjustly calumniated in letters written after his departure, and which were intercepted and published by the English. I ought also to add that, as he would never, for his own private use, resort to the money-chest of the army, the contents of which were indeed never half sufficient to defray the necessary expenses, he several times drew on Genoa through Monsieur James, and on the funds he possessed in the house of Clary, 16,000, 25,000, and up to 33,000 francs. I can bear witness that, in Egypt, I never saw him touch any money beyond his pay, and that he left the country poorer than he had entered it, is a sad fact that cannot be denied. In his notes on Egypt, it appears that, in one year, 12,600,000 francs were received. In this sum were included at least two million of contributions, which were levied at the expense of many decapitations. Bonaparte was fourteen months in Egypt, and he is said to have brought away with him twenty million. Calumny may be very gratifying to certain persons, but they should at least give it a colouring of probability. The fact is that Bonaparte had scarcely enough to maintain himself at Ajaccio, and to defray our posting expenses to Paris. On our arrival at Ajaccio, we learnt the death of Joubert and the loss of the Battle of Novi, which was fought on the 15th of August. Bonaparte was tormented by anxiety. He was in a state of utter uncertainty as to the future. From the time we left Alexandria till our arrival in Corsica, he had frequently talked of what he should do during the quarantine, which he supposed he would be required to observe on reaching Toulon, the port at which he had determined to land. Even then, he cherished some illusions respecting the state of affairs, and he often said to me, quote, But for that confounded quarantine, I would hasten ashore and place myself at the head of the army of Italy. All is not over, and I am sure that there is not a general who would refuse me the command. The news of a victory gained by me would reach Paris as soon as the Battle of Aboukir. That indeed would be excellent. End quote. 
In Corsica, his language was very different. When he was informed of our reverses and saw the full extent of the evil, he was for a moment overwhelmed. His grand projects then gave way to the consideration of matters of minor import, and he thought about his detention in the Lazaretto of Toulon. He spoke of the directory, of intrigues, and of what would be said of him. He accounted his enemies those who envied him, and those who could not be reconciled to his glory and the influence of his name. Amidst all these anxieties, Bonaparte was outwardly calm, though he was moody and reflective. Providing against every chance of danger, he had purchased at Ajaccio a large launch, which was intended to be towed by the Mouiron, and it was manned by twelve of the best sailors the island could furnish. His resolution was, in case of inevitable danger, to jump into this boat and get ashore. This precaution had well nigh proved useful. Footnote. Sir Walter Scott, at the commencement of his Life of Napoleon, says that Bonaparte did not see his native city after 1793. Probably to avoid contradicting himself, the Scottish historian observes that Bonaparte was near Ajaccio on his return from Egypt. He spent eight days there, Burienne. End footnote. After leaving the Gulf of Ajaccio, the voyage was prosperous and undisturbed for one day, but on the second day, just at sunset, an English squadron of fourteen sail hove in sight. The English, having advantage of the lights which we had in our faces, saw us better than we could see them. They recognised our two frigates as Venetian-built, but luckily for us, night came on, for we were not far apart. We saw the signals of the English for a long time, and heard the report of the guns, more and more to our left, and we thought it was the intention of the cruisers to intercept us on the south-east. Under these circumstances, Bonaparte had reason to thank fortune, for it is very evident that had the English suspected our two frigates of coming from the east and going to France, they would have shut us out from land by running between us and it, which to them was very easy. Probably they took us for a convoy of provisions going from Toulon to Genoa, and it was to this error and the darkness that we were indebted for escaping with no worse consequence than a fright. Footnote. Here Bourrienne says in a note, quote, Where did Sir Walter Scott learn that we were neither seen nor recognised? We were not recognised, but certainly seen. End quote. This is corroborated by the testimony of the Duc de Rovigo, who in his memoirs says, quote, I have met officers of the English navy who assured me that the two frigates had been seen, but were considered by the admiral to belong to his squadron as they steered their course towards him, and as he knew we had only one frigate in the Mediterranean and one in Toulon harbour, he was far from supposing that the frigates which he had described could have General Bonaparte on board. Savary, tome 1, page 226. End footnote. During the remainder of the night, the utmost agitation prevailed on board the Mouiron. Ganton, especially, was in a state of anxiety which it is impossible to describe, and which it was painful to witness. He was quite beside himself, 
for a disaster appeared inevitable. He proposed to return to Corsica. No, no, replied Bonaparte imperiously. No, spread all sail, every man at his post, to the northwest, to the northwest. This order saved us, and I am enabled to affirm that in the midst of almost general alarm, Bonaparte was solely occupied in giving orders. The rapidity of his judgment seemed to grow in the face of danger. The remembrance of that night will never be effaced from my mind. The hours lingered on, and none of us could guess upon what new dangers the morrow's sun would shine. However, Bonaparte's resolution was taken, his orders were given, his arrangements made. During the evening, he had resolved upon throwing himself into the long-boat. He had already fixed on the persons who were to share his fate, and had already named to me the papers which he thought it most important to save. Happily, our terrors were vain, and our arrangements useless. By the first rays of the sun, we discovered the English fleet sailing to the northeast, and we stood for the wished-for coast of France. The 8th of October, at 8 in the morning, we entered the roads of Crejus. The sailors not having recognised the coast during the night, we did not know where we were. There was at first some hesitation whether we should advance. We were by no means expected, and did not know how to answer the signals, which had been changed during our absence. Some guns were even fired upon us by the batteries on the coast. But our bold entry into the roads, the crowd upon the decks of the two frigates, and our signs of joy, speedily banished all doubt of our being friends. We were in the port, and approaching the landing-place, when the rumour spread that Bonaparte was on board one of the frigates. In an instant, the sea was covered with boats. In vain we begged them to keep at a distance. We were carried ashore, and when we told the crowd, both of men and women, who were pressing about us, the risk they ran, they all exclaimed, We prefer the plague to the Austrians! What were our feelings when we again set foot on the soil of France, I will not attempt to describe. Our escape from the dangers that threatened us seemed almost miraculous. We had lost twenty days at the beginning of our voyage, and at its close we had been almost taken by an English squadron. Under these circumstances, how rapturously we inhaled the balmy air of Provence. Such was our joy that we were scarcely sensible of the disheartening news which arrived from all quarters. At the first moment of our arrival, by a spontaneous impulse, we all repeated, with tears in our eyes, the beautiful lines which Voltaire has put into the mouth of the exile of Sicily. Bonaparte has been reproached with having violated the sanitary laws. But after what I have already stated respecting his intentions, I presume there can remain no doubt of the falsehood of this accusation. All the blame must rest with the inhabitants of Fréjus, who on this occasion found the law of necessity more imperious than the sanitary laws. Yet when it is considered that four or five hundred persons and a quantity of effects were landed from Alexandria, where the plague had been raging during the summer, it is almost a miracle that France, and indeed Europe, escaped the scourge. End of chapter 21